0: sing songs of worship and also of testimony. So as we worship God together this morning, our hearts should be motivated to testify of him faithfully as we've sung this morning. Turn to Revelation chapter 4 as we continue this study, hoping to get through a whole chapter today. There are a lot of details involved here as John literally struggles to try to explain in words what he's seen. If you've ever seen something that's very unusual or unexpected, and a family member or somebody asks you to explain it and you find you're struggling with even the right words to try to describe it and explain it so that people can understand it, we can... Sympathize with John here. He's seeing something that few saints in history have ever seen, and we certainly have never seen. We get to hear it through his testimony. Ezekiel saw this vision come to him. Isaiah, in a little bit different form, saw the same sort of thing. But John gets to be taken to heaven the very throne room of god and see the splendors and the majesty and the worship and then try to explain it to us and of course with the spirit's help we have all that we need to have enough understanding we don't want to add extra things sometimes people come to this passage and a revelation and they add things that really could be a possibility as far as an explanation but since it's not clearly stated in the text we want to be careful, and we're going to do that again today, that we can get so distracted by the details, and some of these things are strange that we're going to read this morning. Even in the scripture reading, it's a little strange to you, and yet it is the glories of heaven, and the main theme that we need to understand is the need to worship God rightly, to worship the one on the throne. Jesus' addressing of the seven churches has finished. We finished that with the church of Laodicea last week. And now John's focus is redirected, as it seems, uh, away from Jesus to a heavenly realm. We'll actually see a door. We'll see that here in a minute. And he's going to receive the rest of the revelation of the end times events from that heavenly realm. At the beginning, Jesus came to John, met him there on the Isle of Patmos where he's exiled. He came to him, and now John is going to be ushered up into heaven in the Spirit to view the magnificent throne of God. What an amazing opportunity this must have been. But before before we get any further, any further understanding of what the end-time events will be, there's something very important that's impressed upon John, And that John needs to impress upon us. And that is that the worship of God that is appropriate and necessary before the throne of God. Before we hear anything else about future events, we need to be with spirits that are ready to worship him. And after we've already prepared that for you this morning, and that's hopefully what you have as we continue to go into the narrative and the events here that our hearts are worshipful and ready to receive the further information that we'll get throughout the rest of the book. This chapter makes it clear the glory and the sovereignty of God deserve our full worship because of who He is. Not just in His throne room in the heavenlies, but folks in down here in our lives, in our church, in Village Chapel Baptist Church this morning. I think it's so appropriate again that we're going through this series in Sunday School and Behold of Your God. Learning more about who God is so that we can be motivated to worship Him more passionately and informed. We should never be satisfied with anything less than full, passionate worship of God, folks. Tepid, remember last week, lukewarm worship is totally unacceptable. And so many times we can get trapped into that we have gone to church, most of us, almost our whole lives. Um, even well-meaning people can come to church and kind of get distracted and just kind of go with the flow. You know, They know what's going to happen every week and, and what's going to happen and when the offer is going to be taken and all these sorts of things. And we just kind of um, just go into autopilot, worship autopilot. And we stand at the right times, we sit at the right times. And yet we can just, another terminology that we use in our culture today, we can just phone it in not really be paying attention to what we're doing. It can happen to any of us. And it probably happens at least once or twice, even in every service. And we get satisfied with that. And the vision that John is showing us this morning gives us this raw, amazing, and powerful picture of worship in heaven. And from this, then we take Our worship needs to be better here on earth right now so that we can be prepared for that. Worship the one on the throne. And let's just read verses 1 through 8 and we'll pray. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit... And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Father, as we view this magnificent, marvelous scene that takes place consistently around your throne. Even as taking place as we hold this service now, let us be motivated and consumed, really, with the desire to worship you to the best of our ability. Father, we know we can't worship you in the way that these creatures can at the moment, but one day we will. We will worship you in full perfection and in full commitment. That will be a wonderful day indeed. Help us to be preparing for that even now. Worship you with all our might and to give you the glory that you so willing, so uh, wonderfully deserve. Help us to worship you personally each day of our life as well in this fashion. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The need to worship the one on the throne. And the one on the throne, the first seven verses, is worthy of all of our attention. His very presence in the throne room and is on the presence even with us here today deserve our full attention. So you give attention as we read these verses together here. As John's attention is drawn from Jesus upward to the sight of a strange thing and opening a door open into heaven. Verse 1, And after this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And in some translations, there's an exclamation point after that. Because it's strange. John wasn't expecting that. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet. We can think through this. Who would that be? Well, the first voice would be the one that's just talking to him. And as Jesus has been talking to him on earth... Now his focus is to this heavenly door and Jesus is now calling him up and saying now you're going to come up to heaven and you're going to see things. And of course, his voice is that powerful voice of the trumpet. We got to hear Rob again play today and that was powerful and wonderful. But this voice, the voice of Jesus that John hears is even more powerful and commanding and distinct than any horn could ever give us. And Jesus' voice says, Come up as a command, here, and I will show you what must take place after this. The one, remember from our studies in these letters to the churches, the one who opens doors and no one can shut, has opened a door for John, the very entryway to the very throne room of heaven. He'll be able to experience that the other day, you know, we we are still, as we find opportunity, as leadership, looking for other um, options as far as our future um, quarters and where we're going to worship and things like that, and there was uh, one home that's in Kentucky, not too far, just down the road from downtown, uh, around the way from us, that uh, we saw was up for sale, and it was obviously one of these very old New England homes that had the the large barn connected out behind it, and then um, a, a large middle section and the front section there. And we noticed it was on it was not on sale, but it was open uh, for open house for people to view. So Bill and I, and I believe Tom, uh, went to look at it. And uh, for these guys, especially Bill, who had renovated old New England homes, it was really fascinating to hear all of the old construction. And there was this um, circular, circular uh, stair steps that uh, Bill pointed out is very old and very New England-like, and it's just one of those homes where you stand outside and you think, man, I'd like to see inside that sometime. We, we have this happen all the time as we're driving around, and I see, Leslie and I will see a home, and we think, oh, wouldn't it be nice just to be able to go in and, and visit and see that home for a few minutes? And we got to see this this home, and it was fascinating about the different rooms and how they constructed things. It was something that we were looking forward to. We wanted to see inside, and we had a desire to do that. Well, how much more as John sees this open door to heaven? He says, I want to see inside. And Jesus says, come on up. I'm going to show you what's going on here. And John, remember, has described what has happened in the recent past as Jesus first appeared to him. And then he's described what Jesus has said to him in the present. And now he's called up into heaven to explain what will happen in the future. Really, that is kind of an outline of the whole book of Revelation. At this point, as John um, is received up into heaven, is taken up, he will receive what will happen, the details of end-time events. But again, there's something that he needs to understand first, and that is the need and the priority... Worship the one on the throne. Verse 2: And at once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, and one seated on the throne. John is taking this as some sort of spiritual experience as the Spirit again um, takes over, and somehow um, I wouldn't imagine this as him bodily entering heaven but more of a spiritual experience. As he says here, I was taken up in the Spirit. And the very first thing that he sees is the most important thing. And as we continue to read, we'll see that it's almost, it's like he can't fully look at it. He's trying to describe, but it's almost, it's so bright, he he has to look at the things around. Experiencing that in the last couple of days with the bright sunlight coming in through um, the front windshield and as you're driving you know that if you forgot your sunglasses or you don't, your, your flaps not working there in your car you're trying to do all that you can to avoid looking directly at the sun because it's so damaging and bright and in essence as John is trying to describe the one on the throne it's so bright he knows he can't just look right at it and that shouldn't surprise us Moses had that problem too didn't he and God graciously helped him with that but here is the one who is the most important focus of the vision, and it's he's on a great throne in this magnificent presence of God the Father, points as much as John can, he realizes this is the central person and purpose of life, of all things. And it's the first thing and the most important emphasis that he gives. Notice as he continues to try to describe the one on the throne, in vague but magnificent terms. Um, he talks about it having, and he this, the appearance. It's almost like he's saying, well, if I had to try and describe it to you, it's so amazing. I can barely look at it, but I think I would say it's like this, and then it's, it's like this, and the glory and the magnificence comes through even as he's describing this. Verse 3. He who sat there had the appearance of Jasper Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. It's almost this again, as he sees the one on the throne, Then he immediately almost has to, he describes him in basic terms and then has to take his gaze to around the throne and what's going on around the throne. But he describes this one, the God of heaven, our heavenly Father, is having the appearance of jasper and these precious stones, carnelian. And what do we even make of this as we hear these things? Well, as we read and we see these different descriptions, there have been temptations, and you can understand this, for people to read jasper and think there must be a specific spiritual application is something that they're trying to that he's trying to present in the fact that he said Jasper and then he uses this other stone carnelian that we'll talk about in a minute and, and the throne with a rainbow and so there must be some sort of meaning behind each of these things. And that's tempting to want to do. Is there some secret meaning that as more we study, we can see um, truths and things that we hadn't seen before. Well there is a purpose for this description. But we don't want to get too into the details and study to the point where there's not those things that we add that aren't there we're not told that these represent anything in particular and so we want to be careful as we discuss this terminology to not take it in an exact literal way or assigning spiritual meaning to each term let's just take that uh, appearance of jasper jasper is an english word used to describe a material that basically is unknown to us today It's not the type of, if you've ever seen a picture of Jasper before, the modern stone called Jasper is opaque. And this description doesn't describe something that's opaque, but more like the description of a diamond in its glory. And so John with that term Jasper is describing a mineral that we really don't even know what it is today. Kind of like we have today, we have uranium and these radioactive elements that people in Bible times would have never understood. They were were real things. They are real things. This mineral was something that was real and that um, John's audience would have understood. But my point is, instead of trying to spiritualize each description, there's a more general purpose that we need to take from this that is more accurate. Attempts to guess whether it was green or red makes it... um, some people say this was a green stone. Well, there's other green stones, stones described in this list here. So we don't we want to be careful with that. Cornelian, however, is a stone that we have today. They're deeply red colored gems. And actually the city of Sardis was named after this expensive substance. But any attempt to try to put a spiritual value to each of these stones is really speculation. We need to be careful with that. Let's look at the rainbow here, the throne with a rainbow. This is interesting. As John is now uh, looking around the throne because he can't gaze too, too directly at the bright sun, the glory of God, he's looking around the throne and sees this rainbow, a majestic rainbow. And really the way that it's described, this is how we ought to see this. Let's look at verse 3. The throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Really this seems to describe... Um, a dazzling light that's emitted from a crystal our boys have had crystals and they've done experiments where you can get light to go through a crystal and you see the prism of the colors really this is an incredible gem crystal where this rainbow is coming right out of it. amazing majestic rainbow it's described possibly here um, uh, since it mentions an emerald, the Greek word there might have a slight greenish tint as it's coming out. And so some look at this, I'll give you an example of speculating beyond really where we should go. Some look at this rainbow and say, see, it's a sign of mercy in the midst of the judgment of the throne of God. Well, that makes good sense in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean the sign of rainbow was a sign of mercy that God gave to Noah um, in the midst of the judgment that had just happened may make sense but we really don't find that specifically named in the text do we? It's a problem with speculation so what is the purpose of these descriptions and this appearance of Jasper Carnelian and a rainbow folks there's a very obvious thing that John is trying to point out here he's doing his best to describe the appearance of radiance and beauty in this throne room what he's saying—it's—it's it's amazing. I look at the one on the throne, and I can't look at him long. But it's almost like it's like this—a diamond. It's like a, a, a red emerald, and and I see this rainbow and the magnificence of that. And it's like you know, a colors coming out of a crystal. And he's trying to explain the magnificence and power and glory of the throne. That's it. And he's doing the best that he can through the power of the Holy Spirit even for John to be able to look upon this, he would need the help of the Holy Spirit, right? That's what's going on here. So we want to be careful not to spiritualize things too much when uh, there's an obvious, clear reason for why John is describing things in this way. Well, John is going to continue to give this description of the things surrounding the throne now. And he's going to show us that God's worshipers deserve our attention too. These uh, heavenly worshipers are amazing. And John is going to give us a description of what now is near the throne. Verse 4, he describes 24 elders clothed in white garments with gold crowns on their heads. Well, who are these folks? Look look at verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns. On their heads. This is a very interesting, another interesting description here. And as scholars read this, and many folks read this, and you can understand this, this would make sense. There's many that interpret these 24 angels as a type of, (laughs) elders as a type of angel. And they say these must be angels because they're around God's throne already. And God's people have not yet ascended. But remember, um, John has already been, in a sense, uh, a preliminary to a rapture, been raptured up into this throne room. And so the picture here is what also will happen when we are raptured and when, and when we enter the, the heavenlies as well. So from that perspective, and you think about it, if these were angels... Are angels described wearing garments with golden crowns on their head? Are angels described as being rulers of anything? And are angels ever really referred to as elders? These are actual people. Now, you should be able to think through this. Where have we recently heard a description, Jesus has promised that his followers would reign with him, would be given white garments, and given victor's crowns, and be given ruler ruling responsibilities. None of those have been promised to angels. So, really, the most obvious description or implication and um, understanding of this is that these Elders are actual people. They are raptured believers who are now ruling and reigning with Christ in white garments, and they've received everything that Jesus has promised that they would receive. Well, why 24? What's the purpose in that number? Well, these are best... And, and many other scholars, many uh, men that I respect, have the same... Um, Interpretation, I believe this is the most accurate. These are best viewed as a representation of the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. And evidence from Scripture bears this out. Let me just take you, you turn to Matthew 19, verse 28, but let me just give you some evidence from Exodus, the Old Testament, and Acts about uh, the fact that the word elders represented actual people that would lead God's people. Exodus 24, verse 1, Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. That word elders is used for people that are leaders over God's people. And in the New Testament as well, we have the same word um, used. Acts 14, 23, And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. In other words, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the word elders is used for leaders of God's people. But even more so, this helps us, Matthew 19.28 gives us much further, uh, a better idea. As Jesus himself said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So here you have the promise from Jesus Himself, and so the twelve tribes from the Old Testament, of, uh, of the leaders that represent those on the twelve thrones, and then the twelve apostles as well, those represented from the New Testament that were leaders of God's people. Later on in Revelation fifteen three, it's interesting that these and the and, and those in heaven they sing um, two songs. It says they sing the song of Moses. If you tie that in, that seems to correlate then, the 12 tribes of Israel. And then the song of the Lamb from the New Testament. Saying, and then they continue on. So you have this, this, uh, this characterization of the Old Testament song and the New Testament song, which fits well with this interpretation seems most natural that and evidence from scripture bears the fact that these 24 elders are representative of the people of God who will be in heaven worshipping him for all eternity once we're taken up into glory well John's not through with this description yet his attention now moves to the powerful activity around this throne as he sees these people now there's this amazing activity right Verse 5, the throne, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Remember, fire is an image that means it's for purity and refining. And you remember, we've talked about this already. The seven spirits of God, the best interpretation is that is the Holy Spirit. And you have the Holy Spirit here surrounding the throne and the power and of, of him visually as like fire, which would make sense. If you remember, when the Holy Spirit came upon the church, it was as an image of flames of fire. So this is certainly appropriate for the image of the Holy Spirit as he is around the throne there. And these flashes of lightning and rumbling and peals of thunder are the power of God. I'm sure as you have been hopefully not standing in a field in the midst of a thunder and lightning storm. But if you've watched it from a safe distance, you're amazed at the power of lightning. And you see that lightning, and then you hear the thunder delayed, and then it's just that remarkable reminder of the power of God. Um, we, one time in our home in Maryland, we looked at the parsonage there, and we had um, we had a good amount of grass and field, and then we had a patch of woods behind us. But in front of the house, there was two trees, was two, and good-sized trees, and this was one night when this took place. It was thundering. It was raining out, and I had to go down to the basement for something. So I was down in the basement, not too far from the furnace. And all of a sudden, I heard this loud pop, and I could hear it right. It was almost like right next to the stonework there in the basement. And I thought, what was that? It was almost like it was almost like I could feel um, the energy. From this noise. And then I heard my wife call upstairs and she said, did you see that? I'm like, I'm in the basement. (laughs) I haven't seen anything, but I heard it. And lightning had struck one of those trees and had gone down into the ground and traveled all the way to the house to where I'd I'd heard it. And it was a remarkable display of power of, of the creation of God. Eventually, unfortunately, they had to take that tree down because it had just done too much damage in that lightning strike. But it was a reminder to me of the power of God in nature. And, folks, that's what John is getting here, the power of God in this lightning and thunder, revealing his omnipotence, his all-power, and the Holy Spirit there. And, again, more of a description here. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. What could this be referring to? Well, again, let's not try to spiritualize it too much. This adds to the splendor. Now, it does separate, it seems, from the individuals from the throne, and perhaps it's a crystal-like sea that reminds us that God is unique above all things, and even these creatures are separated by that sea of glass. But really, I think it's best to just, again... This describes splendor and his purity and his holiness as a sea of glass, and water is a common um, description of refinement and purity, described like crystal. In other words, his unique separateness from all of his creation in this. Now, there is another interpretation I think is helpful as well, and I got this from uh, my mentor, Dr. Gary Reimers. He said that this may also be the space where these messengers that we've had just described and the ones that are about to be described next were actually worship God in full transparency. It is the place where they will go, the sea of glass, to worship Him. And that transparency reflects the fact that God knows and sees all of that worship. And the application then today as well is that God knows our worship today. He knows every song we've sung, every note that some of us um, sang off-key, and that's okay. But he knows every part of it. He knows every attitude of our heart as we've come to worship him today. He expects our best. Well, this is remarkable in and of itself, but folks, we still have a little bit farther to go here as he continues to describe some remarkable beings. Let's look at the second part of verse 6. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, were four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. And this picture is really, let's be honest, it's disturbing to us. We don't like to think of things full of eyes. We'll be ready, because this isn't the last time we're going to see this description. And there's a purpose for it. Then it describes these creatures. Well, let's just talk about that as these creatures talking about these eyes all around them. What is the purpose of that? Just to kind of make us unsettled and unnerved? No. I think that there's a very logical explanation here that makes perfect sense. They can see in all directions. And um, it symbolizes their ability to constantly see everything that goes on. They see it all. And these creatures that are a part of the throne room of God also see everything that we do as well, folks. And there's this interesting description as they resemble creatures from creation. Verse 7, the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. Now, these are selected based on... Attributes that people in the New Testament attributed to these animals. We might have maybe picked a different animal in our time today, but this is reflecting the thinking pattern of the people in Bible times. And that is that a lion was a very noble creature, and a lion then represented the face of a lion, regal nobility and authority. The second, an ox, was a common picture of power, of great power. You see this throughout Scripture, as an ox is mentioned, and the context is talking about uh, incredible strength and power. Well, the third face is a man. I think that's the easiest. It reflects intelligence and reason that none of the other creation has. A special creation of God and able to think through things and have wisdom. And the eagle is symbolic throughout Scripture of swiftness and speed. That's a good description. We've seen these in Ezekiel and in other places of what is referred to as the cherry bean. In Ezekiel. These special angels that are allowed near the throne room of God to worship him consistently really reflect the best of God's creation as far as their perfection and their ability to be near the throne and their power and their ability to see all. And isn't it interesting with their constant vigilance, their ability to see all, who is their main focus? It's the one on the throne how much more should it be for those of us who only have one set of eyes to have our gaze on the one on the throne. These creatures are amazing. Um, Another quote here from my friend Dr. Reimers, those who have the best perspective on everything, that can see all, acknowledge that God should be the central focus. So our chief responsibility is to worship God as well. We ought to do our best. As we finish up here, we're going to see the one on the throne is worthy of all of our worship. Not just our attention, but our worship. And his person is worthy of all of our worship. These special angels, these cherubim, are also capable of flight with their six wings. Verse 8, and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. John wants to make that clear. They can see everything. And day and night, they never cease to say. They say this consistently. We shouldn't see this really as chanting incessantly, like without meaning. Like monks in, monks in the middle, um, the middle Ages that chant this drone on and on and on. That's not at all what this is. It is not um, every second filled with this, but they're saying this consistently in a glorious way beautiful way they're ascribing glory to God and they're not hindered by going to sleep at night they're constantly doing this on a regular basis what are they saying? Holy, holy holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come these cherubim and even the elders we're going to see throughout Revelation have other responsibilities the cherubim do too but worship of God is their primary delight and focus. And folks, if that's true of the attendance of heaven, us, God's people here on earth with all of our responsibilities, that should be our primary focus too. We have no excuse. If the heavenly beings are willing to set, down, set aside their responsibilities and their most important primary thing is offering glory to God, that ought to be true for us too. No excuses. Reminder to us here. They sing of God's person and his holiness, his separateness, his uniqueness. It's a picture there again of that of that sea of glass, that he is separate from everything else, and he is holy, he is without sin, he is perfectly pure. He is the one that deserves all of our worship. And he's the one as well that makes us holy to be able to give him that worship. remember all the things that the priests in the Old Testament had to go through, all the rituals to be able to worship God and carry out their responsibilities? All the washings and the sprinkling of the blood, this long, elaborate process. If we had to do that today to come to worship, I think some of us would give up before we ever came to the door. Oh, I'm too tired to go through all that again today. Aren't we glad that we don't have to do that because of the work that Christ accomplished? We can just come here together and worship, but folks, we ought to be prepared for that because we ought to reflect the purity and the holiness in some form or fashion that we will one day before God. We ought to be holy as God is is holy. In other words, reflect his purity separateness from sin in some form or fashion but he is holy he's the lord god almighty that means he's all powerful lord god almighty he is all power he's omnipotent nothing can stay him nothing can keep him from his plan as we're about ready to find out what that plan is he is all powerful he is fully dependable there is no enemy that can conquer him And who was and is and is to come means he's eternal. He's always been. He always will be. He's always existed throughout time. He's eternal. Those are wonderful things to praise him for. And we do that many times in our singing here. There's so much more. Those are things that they focus on. Some of the things. And as John is noticing this amazing worship, worship, Then he notices the the synchronization with the elders as well. Verse 9, And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, then the 24 elders fall down before Him, maybe on that sea of glass, who is seated on the throne, and worship Him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne. Here they are... um, honoring his glory and giving glory to him it says there and it says that word honor has the idea of them ascribing the utmost value to him the one on the throne is the most valuable person to them and they're honoring him in that way and then also giving him thanks giving gratitude toward him and the elders join in that as well and not incessant reputation, but consistent worship. Uh, you know that I was a youth pastor for many years at, in Maryland. And a number of our young ladies that were in our youth group also worked in the nursery. And um, one of our young ladies at one time uh, had her phone available at the end. I, th- I hope it was at the end of the service. And she showed one of our boys who was the... Uh, who was in nursery at that time, a, she thought it was a special song. It was off of YouTube. And it was about basically um, a woman that was singing it that was singing about peeling avocados. And it was one of the most obnoxious and repetitive songs. I, I don't know I call it a song. It was a composition of notes meant to worm its way into your mind and you could never get rid of it. And the problem was, is after she showed that to my son, they picked it up, a couple of them, and all the way home we were singing this. They were singing this song over and over again, this avocado song, and it was driving us crazy. And we finally had to say, "No more, no more avocado song." Isn't that horrible? <laughs> but we were about ready to lose our minds. This incessant repetition of the song that had no meaning. Well, folks, please, we've heard this, this. Um, theme many times. Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That should never be our reaction to that song. We should never tire of that. And one day when we will hear it before the heavenly throne room, it will be the most beautiful music that we've ever heard. We will want to hear it. We'll we'll say sing it again, sing it again. And the creatures will say we'd be glad to do that. And they will do that and we will sing it with them together. And it'll be the most glorious music and sound. We get to hear a lot of beautiful things uh, on earth and a lot of beautiful symphonies. And I appreciate Brother Kirk giving us access to being able to do things like that from time to time and hear the the glories of earthly music. But folks, as wonderful as the best music ever played in our world is, this is another level. We're never going to want it to end. And it never will. These elders then offer too praise to God for His attributes, but then they add something to it. They praise Him for His mighty works of creation. They're recognizing His sovereignty here. Verse 11. Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, just like the others said, for you created all things. By your will, they existed and were created. The sovereignty of God, whatever He wills, takes place. Just a word, right? At the beginning of creation, and it happened. God said, I want this to happen. It's my will. And bam, here we have creation. In all of its glory and marvel and power. Because God desired for it to be. His sovereignty... And his plan and his power and authority in our lives, though, wouldn't you agree, is worthy of all of our worship today? And yet, many times, it just becomes old hat to us. It becomes old. It becomes something just that we do. And John gives us this picture to remind us no, the worship in heaven is glorious, it's magnificent. It's almost strange to our ears, but He's worthy of it all, and we should do our best here and now to worship Him as well. Growing up, I grew up in Michigan. I told you that before. There was a wonderful phenomenon that we get to experience here in New England, and that is in the autumn and the fall, the changing of the leaves. Boy, weren't there some glorious colors this past fall, a blessing that was? and just almost, they're, they're... shining because the, the the color is so intense and we had that in Michigan as well where I lived but there was a problem growing up as I had all this beauty around me I just got used to it and I remember a phrase that my grand my grandpa in particular told me regularly when we would visit him and when he would take us places and we were in in the fall and I was a real book reader A lot of my boys, our boys enjoy reading. Well, I love to read, and I love to read at that point. And most of the time, whatever I was doing, if I was on a trip or things, I always had a book and was reading constantly. That would drive my grandfather crazy because I was missing, not that I was reading. He was glad that I was reading, but that I was missing everything else around me because I was constantly reading, and I had the wrong focus. And he would comment on how beautiful the autumn leaves were and everything, and here I am. Not even noticing. And I remember this so so well. He said this so many times. Get your nose out of that book and look around you. (laughs) Appreciate what God has done here. in the colors in the fall. Well, I don't know how successful I was as a young man with that. But I do remember going back as a 20-year-old with with some of my family and, and visiting my grandparents. And it was a particularly glorious fall season. And the colors were so bright. And I remember looking and noticing those things in my adult uh, life and thinking, this is marvelous. I have missed this because I had a newfound appreciation being away for it for so long of its beauty and its glory. And you know what? This past fall season, I found myself telling my boys, (laughs) stop reading that book. (laughs) Look, take some time or get off that tablet And look around at the beauty and the splendor and the glory of God and His creation. Folks, that's what we need to do when it comes to worship. Stop being distracted. When other other focuses come up during worship time, remember this picture of what God deserves and say, Lord, help me even in a more intense, understanding way to remember how you should be worshiped and the glory of worship, and that I need to do so much better as I come to worship. What's wonderful is God has the grace for forgiveness and the grace to help us to worship Him better. Do you see see from John's description that He's worthy of so much more than we give Him many times? Let's let this motivate us to worship Him better. And one day, we'll be with Him. We'll be casting our crowns at His feet we will be able to worship Him in a perfect way that we can't even imagine down here. That will be a glorious day. Let's worship Him well today and look forward to the day when we can worship Him in this manner as He is worthy of uh, experiencing from us. Father, what a glorious, amazing, and really kind of strange picture to us that we have here from Revelation chapter 4. Let it motivate us, remind us, to continue to strive to worship You in a way that You are worthy. We can't fly. We don't see all things. And yet, Lord, we can give You the best of what we have. And through the power of Jesus and through the work of the Holy Spirit, it is enough. But help us not to be complacent or lukewarm or tepid in our worship but with full commitment and vigor. Help us to worship you in the way that you deserve until Jesus comes. And then we know we'll be able to worship you fully in a way we long to do. Thank you for the grace that you take our worship as imperfect as it is now. And that it honors you. Help us to do better in this area of our lives. For it's in Jesus' name we pray.